0: I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky, and this is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. In another sign of how coronavirus has turned everything about our lives upside down, this morning at the exact moment the Labor Department was announcing economic reopenings put more than 4 million Americans back to work in June. It also announced more than 1 million Americans had lost their jobs in the last week weeks of job losses in the millions now a warning of what may be to come as cities and states begin shutting down again in the face of a virus that is as tenacious as it is unpredictable caleb silver joins us from investopedia caleb what do these numbers mean
1: well we're seeing the push and pull as the economy reopens viruses spike and then layoffs begin anew so unfortunately it looks like a W-shaped recovery. Hopefully not a double-dip recession, but we are seeing these ebbs and flows of the job market. Definitely jobs were added in June a lot, especially in the leisure and hospitality and restaurant industry, but we also continue to see first-time unemployment claims stay stubbornly high, and continuing claims for unemployment also stay stubbornly high. Jobs are being added back, but not quickly enough, and a lot of folks who just got hired back are getting fired again.
0: This report does not take into account the latest surge in more than half the country. Can we rely on this report? Is it meaningful then?
1: There are some things to take away from it, but by and large the the way that the Bureau of Labor Statistics takes the survey, they take it in the middle of the month, they call state labor departments, they also call businesses to survey their hiring. Uh, and firing. And these state uh, labor departments have been backlogged with millions of claims. They don't get two, three million claims a month like they've been getting lately. So they don't really have an accurate count. It's hard to really get a good sense of it. That said, we can take some things away from it. We know that 12.4 million people flowed into the labor market in that survey time in the month of June. Meanwhile, 7.5 million flowed out. So they were laid off. We had a a push and pull then. We know where the sectors uh, of strength were, and that was in retail trade, uh, that was in leisure and hospitality, and in health care. But we also know the breakdown by race, and the breakdown by race paints a very uneven picture of the economic recovery.
0: What does it tell us?
1: Adult men, uh, the unemployment rate is 10.2%. That's all adult men. But for whites, it's 10%, uh, 10 10.1%. For blacks, it's 15.4%. Hispanics, 14.5%. And Asians, 13.8%. Typically, black and Hispanic unemployment are almost double that of whites. And they came close together as we've seen these high numbers. But as the jobs come back, we're not seeing an equal recovery across race.
0: What's the prediction then going forward? Is the July report? finally going to to
1: show some course correction? We will see because that's when we'll probably see a lot of more of those seasonal jobs being added, and that's in the retail area, that's in leisure and hospitality. Assuming we don't have further lockdowns, like we're seeing in Florida, like we're seeing in Texas and in California, and in New York, where we're not allowed to eat inside restaurants. Uh, so, if we have more lockdowns because the virus spikes, we won't see jobs recover in those areas, and that's where most people are, are employed in the services sector. It's also the area where the where the incomes are the lowest. And that's why you see that discrepancy across race.
0: Caleb Silver at Investopedia. More cities are now mandating masks as coronavirus cases continue to climb. Dayton, Ohio became the first big city in that state to do so today. And Columbus quickly followed suit. Dayton Mayor Nan Wiley joins us. Tell us what you're mandating and why.
2: So we passed a mask ordinance yesterday that will require a face covering on anyone in public spaces that are inside anywhere outside where social distancing cannot be maintained. Why now? We're seeing a dramatic uptick in the number of cases in our community in Montgomery County and in Dayton, a fourfold increase. And we've learned so much about how much these masks can really not only help others, but help yourself in keeping you safe. And so uh, as the data continues to come back, masks, have become more and more uh, really one of the key tools we have in fighting COVID.
0: I think you're the first city in in the state to do this, right?
2: First large city, yes. There's a resolution in Yellow Springs, Ohio, and uh, Bexley, goes, a small uh, suburb outside of Columbus, goes in effect the same day as ours does.
0: What's worried you as you've watched the numbers increase? We've seen the cases trend a little bit younger. Is that what you're seeing, too, there?
2: Yes. So I think it's not just, you know, an elderly person's disease. Uh, And also when younger people get it, they move around more. Uh, They're not as aware because, you know, they are less likely to be fatal, but they are real spreaders then. Because that five or six days when they're asymptomatic before they have symptoms, they're moving around a lot. And then they do spread it to the older population. And that is what we've seen in other cities that have had enormous bumps on this disease.
0: Not everyone's thrilled about this. Nobody wants to wear a mask. How are you going to convince no, I, people?
2: I don't like wearing a mask, okay? But, you know, it's a way that we can keep our economy open. You know, masks are key to the economy. They're a key They're a key to keep caring for one another, and they're key for caring yourself. Uh, I look at it, you know, public health orders decades ago told everybody they had to wear shoes when they went into a grocery store, said they had to wear a shirt when they went into a, a retail establishment. Now we're saying you need to have a facial covering It's really that simple. Uh, you don't have to do it in your home. You certainly don't have to do it while you're outside jogging or riding a bike. But when you're around people inside, you need to wear one.
0: How are you going to enforce it?
2: It's complaint-based and civil protection. We're not interested in you know, any criminal liability here. It will be um, uh, really done by businesses. businesses uh, we've encouraged uh, not uh, people that go out, not regular citizens to call the 333 not a cops number, but to have managers where they can't um, get, can get control of the situation to call police. Uh, we encourage people that see people not wearing a mask in a public setting to talk to the supervisor or manager of that location.
0: Mayor, do you wish you had done this sooner?
2: Look, I mean, I think everything, everything to a season. Um, I was disappointed in May when the governor did have um, mask requiring statewide. I do think that would be effective. Um, I was disappointed when that was changed. Uh, but you know, I think seeing these numbers increase, it's just imperative now that we do it. Also, we just know so much more than we did two months ago on this. Uh, and so it's just, it's just the time. It's really right now, now or never on, on, on masks, I think.
0: Is this it masks it, or are you going to have to take additional steps to, to get the virus under control?
2: Well, look, I'm really grateful the governor supported our efforts. I worked in concert with him on this, uh, you know, I know he's going to be color-coding counties across the state, uh, you know, because Cleveland is three and a half hours away than Dayton, and so we have different regions for sure. Uh, so I know we'll work in concert with state government as we make decisions. I don't want to have to go further. I don't want us to have to close down our economy in any way um, that it already is. But, you know, our priority and our North Star is saving lives.
0: Dayton Mayor Nan Wiley, our thanks to you. When the coronavirus outbreak hit back in March, most schools closed down for the remainder of the academic year. Now, as the reopening begins, there is a debate about what's going to be safe for schools in the fall. Someone facing that debate head-on in her community is president of the Fairfax County Federation of
3: Teachers, Tina Williams, and she spoke to my colleague T.J. Holmes. Tina Williams, ma'am, thank you for being here. And how do we strike the balance? Everyone wants those kids and know the kids need to be together, need to be in a classroom. That's ideal. How do you balance that with the safety? How are you weighing it?
4: Well, parents and school staff want a return to school as soon as possible and as safe as possible. We absolutely agree that learning takes place best when our children are in schools face to face for instruction. In Fairfax County, that is why our members have been asking for thorough guidelines that will keep all of our students and all of our staff safe. And this has not yet happened, but we are hopeful that it will. And we look forward to having a fully developed and detailed plan. My members have been sharing their lists of concerns and suggestions with the county from the start. And we will continue to share those on a weekly basis.
3: You said you don't have the guidelines just yet. So you're, you're waiting to kind of hear how things are supposed to work when you get back to school. And then you can have, I guess, more of an informed opinion. But you did ask your members, or at least 500 of them, their opinion and, and their feeling about getting back into the classroom. What were the results?
4: Well, we found that 74% of those members who responded do not feel safe returning as of yet. And that is because we do not yet have a clearly defined plan that is detailed enough. And the truth is that schools should not open until we have those detailed guidelines. Our concerns are also that our students and their families have had a choice to have virtual or face-to-face instruction, and not all of our staff have been given that opportunity
3: all right well tina williams again fairfax county federation of teachers president thank you for being here and good luck down the road we want to get them all back in the class as safely as possible thanks so much
4: thank you tj
3: joining me now is abc news chief medical correspondent dr jen ashton um it's important to note the holiday weekend because there's fear about crowds once again gathering um but texas now being called an epicenter for this um but still you know, we're so focused on us, understandably. Yeah. What's going on with this thing around the rest of the world?
5: That's a really important question, TJ, because when you hear these numbers, it, you have to interpret them with not a grain of salt, a chunk of salt, and we can't just focus on what's happening here. So let's take a global look. Uh, total cases right now. We are leading, unfortunately, number one in the world, followed by Brazil and then followed by Russia. And we have to remember, these are confirmed cases, so estimates are there are many, many, many more that just haven't been confirmed.
3: We're leading in cases. It seems weird to ask the question this way. Are we leading in deaths as well here in the US?
5: Unfortunately, we are. So when you look at the death count again, and this is just the confirmed deaths, we are number one, followed by Brazil, followed by the UK. Um, A lot goes into death count, TJ, because we've heard here in this country, no reason to believe it's different in other parts of the world that a lot of people dying at home, they've never been officially diagnosed and COVID is the leading cause.
3: And how do we look on testing here?
5: Well, first of all, before we go to testing, I want to just double back on that for a sec because you mentioned death rate. We also have to look at mortality rate. That is confusing to define, again, because it requires a lot of good tracking that may be different in different parts of the world. UK number one, about 14%. We are number four at 4.8%. For just some perspective, TJ, the mortality rate for influenza is 0.1%. So again, this is an elusive value. It's not set in stone, but right now, according to the tracking numbers, that's where we are. And are
3: stand. we? Are, are countries measuring that differently?
5: They are, because remember, not every country has the capacity to track data and record data the same way. So this is not an apples to apples comparison. And
3: you were getting the testing as well.
5: Yeah, now this is important because this has gotten so much attention um, politically and, and internationally. The U.S. has in fact conducted THE MOST RAW TESTS IN THE WORLD, um, BUT NOT THE MOST PER CAPITA. NOW, THAT'S A technical difference. Both numbers can actually be misleading as people track this kind of data. But the bottom line, according to epidemiologists, testing should be based on the size of the epidemic in the country, not the size of the country's population. We have a massive population. So you think of it as as proportionate. But um, these are the numbers as they stand right now.
3: All right, Dr. Ashton, we will see you again be with us here for the entire Even. hour. We're to turn now to South Florida becoming one of the country's latest coronavirus hotspots. Miami-Dade County seeing record numbers of new coronavirus cases here now to talk about his city and how it's handling this current phase of the crisis the mayor of miami francis suarez mr mayor good to see you sir tell us just how bad is it
6: it's good to be with you it's it's pretty bad Um, you know yesterday we had a one-day record of 2300 new cases that's information that i just got about an hour ago Um, and to put that number in context uh, in late march when we issued a stay-at-home order our high-water mark was 533 cases, so it's almost five times greater than that. Uh, our hospitalizations are up. Our ICU uh, capacity is down. Uh, so we are uh, managing it by, number one, closing beaches uh, for the July 4th uh, weekend. We're limiting uh, the sale of food to midnight uh, to keep uh, people from congregating late night and partying. We are, uh, we've implemented a mask and public rule. Um, uh, with some fines associated, and also we are going to be closing businesses for a period of time that don't comply with the rules, 10 10 days for the first occurrence, 15 and 30.
3: Uh, Mr. Mayor, those are stunning numbers, 2,300 new cases, and when you issued a stay-at-home order, you're saying you were at 533 uh, in a day. What do you now attribute this surge that you're seeing now to what is it people's behavior getting out opening too quickly not opening the right way what do you attribute that type of spike
6: i think it's uh, to people's behavior if you look at uh you know what's happening nationally you just said uh, you know on the program that we've added you know 4.5 i think million new jobs and so there seems to be an inverse correlation with opening and with the fact that you know more people are out there they're working they're associating uh, they're socializing, and new cases. We ha- also had a record number of cases, so you have a tremendous amount of uh, reduction in unemployment, but you also have a tr- you know a record number of new cases. So there definitely seems to be a correlation uh, there between behavior and uh, and new cases, and that's why we've implemented these targeted set of of of, of things uh, to try to get control of the new cases. We won't know for another week or two. But uh, this is an important weekend because it's a long weekend and it's a weekend where people typically are out and about. So we're asking them not to do that, not to congregate at homes uh, as well, because we do, from our contact tracing, are seeing that some of the new cases are happening from home parties and, of course, graduation parties that we had uh, this month. So we're asking people not to do that.
3: Uh, What's your level of confidence that people are going to behave? because this is a holiday weekend. People want to get out. They want to have a good time. And you're targeting, like you said, some uh, of these new measures at specifically at businesses, in particular restaurants and bars. Yes, the restaurant and bars might just have people come in, but also those people have some personal responsibility as well. What's your level of confidence that people are going to act right?
6: You know, I don't know if it's about a level of confidence for me as as it is about a level of hope. (laughs) My level of hope is that you know that people listen and follow the rules because it's for their own safety. I'm not we don't impose these rules for for government sake. We impose them to protect our residents and protect our visitors. And so what we did see was when we implemented a stay at home order there was a very high percentage of people that complied. And so what we're hoping is that we have that same level of compliance because we know that even though we have this in infor- these new enforcement measures, it's going to be impossible for us to enforce on every single person you know, that may not be wearing a mask. We're hoping that people actually just listen to us and understand that our guidance is driven by the medical professionals, by uh, the epidemiologists and the biostatisticians that we talk to every single day, and that we're actually talking to at this very moment.
3: Uh, Well, Mr. Mayor, hope and fingers crossed I don't know if that's going to be enough to get us through a pandemic. But like you said, there's just uh, a lot of personal responsibility that a lot of people need to take no matter what enforcement measures you put in place. Mr. Mayor, we're rooting for you. So good luck to you down there in Miami. All right. We'll talk to you again. Thank you, guys. Now, with pandemic success story that truly inspires and to think it all started with a single phone call.
7: My name is Greg Daly. That's my main job. I deliver newspapers for the last 25 years in East Windsor, New Jersey. When it comes to volunteering, I Volunteered as a soccer coach. All my kids played soccer, so I did that for probably about eight years. Honestly, having the schedule I have, you know, getting up at four and working full time, there truly wasn't a, a ton of time to volunteer. The pandemic, oddly enough, led to me having the time to do it. The entire thing started with a phone call. I received a phone call from one of my 800 customers. She called me and asked if I would throw the paper closer to the house. A couple days later, I was standing at a grocery store and it just hit me to give her a call. I asked her if she wanted anything. She needed anything from the grocery store. She took me up on it. As I'm going through the store, she called me back and she asked if I wouldn't mind grabbing something for the neighbor across the street. And so I grabbed that as well. It kind of hit me. And you know, these are two customers that live within 100 feet of each other. What about the other 798 people I deliver to? So I put out a note, I'm Greg Daly, I deliver your paper every morning. During these times, if anybody needs any help whatsoever, you know, getting any of the necessities that they, they're used to getting every day, I'm happy to go shopping and deliver them for free. The first call i got was that morning you know other than my three kids this is uh this is like by far the most rewarding thing i've ever done i had no idea the impact it would have because for me it was just like i'm I'm grocery shopping you know it's not something i ever did my wife did all the shopping to be honest (laughs) with you, i spent very little time in the grocery store when you deliver the groceries you know and you get to meet these people you realize um the impact you've had I'm grateful, I'm super grateful that, I, that I've been able to do this. We should all take a step back and aspire to do something for others. Sometimes you just gotta put stuff aside and just uh, and realize that there's a much bigger picture than you. The last three months have taught me uh, patience. There's so many things that you realize are just not worth getting angry about. I feel like I'm gonna be a much, much better person now. Uh, I feel like I already am. A much better person
3: than I was three months ago. All right, a whole lot more still ahead here on what you need to know. NBA star with a mental health message, Kevin Love is here with us. Stay with us.
5: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author, and
8: I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.
9: The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers.
2: There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him.
9: For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime
6: NYC podcast wherever you listen.
3: Kevin Love is a five-time NBA All-Star and NBA champion, but off the court he's become a leading voice for mental health advocacy after publicly sharing his own struggles with anxiety. Recently he was awarded the Arthur Ashe Courage Award at the 2020 ESPYs.
9: I had my singular focus
3: of making it to the NBA. Timberwolves, Kevin Love!
9: 2012 Olympic gold medal or 2016 when we won the championship. I thought I could achieve myself out of it. I was in a really rough period of my life and basketball being, you know, kind of the last pillar had fallen. It's like an accumulation. When those things continue to add up, you kind of. Have it in your mind, well, what's the point? And that can be really, really scary.
3: Cleveland Cavaliers forward. Kevin Love is with me now. Well, man, congratulations, certainly. You, you, you get the author ash Award. Names like Billie Jean King, Muhammad Ali, Nelson Mandela, and now Kevin Love have all gotten that award. You're kind of shaking your head. That kind of gives me the reaction. What, what do you make of your name being on that kind of list?
9: No, it's, I mean, as you mentioned, those names uh, are just unbelievable. to even be in the same conversation as them and what they did for ag- advocacy and also just you know in, in terms of, of myself I, I got greeted with a, a warm reception and a lot of those people didn't a lot of those people had to go through trials and tribulations and and, and setbacks to uh, make a make a major difference so I, I tip my hat to them. And the Arthur Ashe Award means, I mean, so much. So I'm incredibly humbled by it. I hope that people will continue to pay it forward and share their stories, because in my case, it's the same. Uh, if it wasn't for DeMar DeRozan, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be sitting here today.
3: And you, like you said, you, you shared your story, and now people see you as an advocate. I think people see you as, oh, he seems to be doing well. But is this still, is this constant work, and even maybe go as far as, say, a constant struggle in working on your mental health?
9: Oh, it completely is, and it's something that I've come to terms with. That I, I'm never going to get rid of it, but I can change my relationship with it. Whether it be, you know, anxiety and something that just lives within the, the pit of my stomach, or you know, depression when I'm when I'm having bouts of that, or I'm starting to go dark, or I feel like my mind's playing tricks on me. But that's also finding different ways to, uh, you know, combat it and you know push it back and make it seem farther away. So that's that's been. A goal of mine really since, you know, 2018 when I um, not only had a lot going on in my life and and a really tough time, but also, um, you know, just continue to be an advocate and sharing my story. And it's, you know, advocacy, education, uh, grant-making and research, that's what we've been focusing on at our fund. And we're trying to really desigmatize everything around anxiety and depression, because one way or another. You know somebody's dealing with a mental health problem
3: and you you mentioned that your fund, the Kevin Love Foundation I think 500,000 to UCLA's mental health efforts I guess what are you hoping money like that a donation like that can go towards and, and I guess the wider um, goal of the foundation in the first place
9: well I think just you know it's diagnosing preventing uh, treating and then you know research and, and destigmatizing as I mentioned so we have to continue to have these tough conversations and you know know that everybody is truly going through something and that's you know at the fun we're focusing on both physical and emotional well being so it's 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 not only the mind but it's the body as well because I've seen you know people with really chronic inflammation or problems throughout their body killing their brain as well so Um, And I think through through basketball and sports, it's been such a great teacher for me and it's had such a commonality for me as well that I've been able to learn and and have shared experiences with teammates or otherwise people away from the court that's allowed me to to really listen, learn, allow myself to be more empathetic and have, you know, really a, a growth mindset during this time and all of that. Um, And a great way to offset the anxiety, the depression, you know, anything is just being able to give back. It's been really cool. I didn't think I'd ever be sitting here today trying to have an impact and be talking about the Arthur Ashe Award. But I think it just brings such a great light to, especially coming out of this time with with COVID-19 and all the social injustice, there's such a... Uh, you know, people are going to be so susceptible to change and hopefully in a very, very positive way.
3: Well, Kevin, I'm used to seeing you around this time of year for the NBA Finals. Of course, that's uh, not happening this year. Don't <laughs> don't know you well, but I've watched your story and what's happening and what you've been doing from afar. And I can say I'm proud of you, man. It's really been something to watch. So congratulations, Kevin. Hope to see you out there um, at an arena at some point sooner than later. All right, yeah, you take sure. care, brother. Thanks,
9: CJ. Appreciate it
3: all right let's turn now uh finding a job that can be daunting anytime right but now with a pandemic as a factor it may seem near impossible but ceo and author of qualified you are more impressive than you realize well she's here to give college students those new grads the tools to not only help you find a job but the confidence to know that you can find it please welcome amanda knackman ma'am good to see you Look, you just graduated looking for a job. There's a pandemic going on. Do you need to be doing something different than you normally would uh, if there wasn't a pandemic?
11: Well, I actually don't think you need to change up anything, but you should be making courageous connections. And what I mean by that is identify someone who's in your dream job, someone that you admire. This could be from your college or someone you find on LinkedIn and reach out. You're going to make a connection where you're going to hold an informational interview and learn the blueprint for how they got to where they are. And this is going to help you learn the steps that you need to take in your career journey. And what you're going to find is that you're not alone in this career journey. There are people out there that want to help you succeed.
3: Now, you say you should apply for jobs before those jobs are looking to hire. How do you do that? Job's not available, but you're applying for it anyway. How's that work?
11: Yes, exactly. So in my book, Qualified, I talk about the upside down job application. And what I mean by that is that it's really reactive to think that on the day you're looking for a job, that's the moment that there's going to be a job that's perfect for you. So instead of looking on the job boards, I really take that out of the equation. Instead, go back to making those courageous connections. I call it a DM a day. You want to really flex this habit and reach out every day because that's how you're building your network and 85% of jobs are found through networking. So I know I know it's nerve-wracking to hit that send button and that's why I call it Courageous Connections. Um, so in my book, I really help you armor up, build that qualified mindset so you can reach out and make that connection. And like I said, people are out there, they wanna help you succeed and you're gonna learn exactly the steps that you need to take to build your qualified. All right,
3: Courageous Connections, get off the couch, and a DM a day. I can use all this stuff. Uh, Not suggesting I'm looking for a job right now, but uh, Amanda, thank you so much. Qualified, you are more impressive than you realize is going to be available this August. Congratulations on the book. Thanks for spending some time with us.
11: Thank you so much.
3: Well, nursing homes, of course, have been among the hardest hit by this pandemic. And for many seniors, the sting of loneliness can also be pretty bad as well. Bad as the fear of the virus, but the silver lining of this pandemic is that there's no shortage of people trying to lend a helping hand. And my next guest is doing just that through a nonprofit that she founded. Please welcome Hitta Gupta, and she's 15 years old. Uh, Hita, thank you so much for being here. The organization, Well, it seems self-explanatory. It's called Brighten a Day. How exactly do you do that?
12: Yeah, so um, it's a 501c3 nonprofit that um, lifts the spirits of those in need of some cheer. So we send love, hope, and joy through um, cards, gifts, videos, um, video chats, devices, and um, we've reached tens of thousands of um, seniors in nursing homes and children in the hospital.
3: Now, what kinds of things, now you mentioned, you said cards and gifts, and I guess more specifically, what kinds of things, what kinds of messages are we talking about that you're trying to make sure you get to them?
12: Yeah, um, so it's like uplifting cards, um, like cheerful notes, encouraging messages and videos. Um, Some volunteers show off talents like singing, dancing, um, (laughs) playing music, anything that will kind of lift the senior spirits.
3: Uh, And you use a lot of devices. You want to make sure that they're connected uh, sometimes with their families as well with messages. How does that work?
12: Yeah. So um, when I was reaching out to nursing homes about coordinating um, video chats between volunteers and residents, um, I learned that in many nursing homes, they're only using devices that that actually belong to the staff. So um, I wanted to do something about that, which is why I started donating devices to nursing homes so that um, residents can stay connected with family and with volunteers through video chat. And we've donated around 15 so far, but I'm also hoping that if anybody has any like devices um, that are going unused, they can also donate those as well.
3: Well, you know what? There's someone. We mentioned your story to someone uh, over at amazon and they had a message they wanted to send to you so i want you to take a listen
4: hi Hita. this is beatrice from amazon we've heard about the great work your organization bright A day is doing to help seniors we are humbled to hear people like you having an impact which is why we committed to donating five million dollars in devices to help in these unprecedented times we are inspired by you so we decided to help by donating 100 devices to your organization keep up the great work hita <laughs>
3: So if you heard that right, yes, Amazon just donated 50 Fire 8 tablets and 50 Kindles. So you just went from 15 <laughs> to 115 devices. Tell me what your reaction is and how far that could go to help in the efforts that you're, you're making.
12: Oh, my God, that is absolutely amazing. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I'm just thinking about all the residents who are going to um, benefit from this will be able to reach a lot more nursing homes there's gonna be so many more residents who are going to be able to video chat with family, especially in nursing homes where they just don't have enough devices to do all these video chats.
3: A hundred devices are coming your way. We applaud you for your efforts, something that simple just to put a smile on somebody's face with a card. But again, the, the effort you're making to keep that connectivity with these families, congratulations on what you're doing, your you 15-year-old smiling young lady, you. <laughs> Good
5: to see you. <laughs> yep, thank you. <laughs>
3: I needed that, Dr. Ashton. I needed that today.
5: That was a good one.
3: That was great. What are your final thoughts? What do you have
5: for me? So, T.J., you know, this week we've been tackling um, the theories of medical bioethics, a different one each day, and there are generally thought to be four of them. But I wanted to include one that doesn't get a lot of attention. It's not one of the official four, but truthfulness. You know, when I was in medical school, my father, who's a cardiologist, said to me, if you want to be the best doctor you can be, you only need to do three things. You need to be kind, you need to work really hard and you need to be honest. Mm -hmm. And I think right now in our setting, which is unprecedented, this public health crisis, this global pandemic, truthfulness is really, really important. We need to say what we know. You need to say what we don't know. And that kind of medical and scientific honesty and integrity is is actually the most important thing and sometimes it's not about having the right answers sometimes it's about asking the right questions mm-hmm. and in medicine when you're dealing with a frightened patient an individual you don't have to say, I know everything. In fact, when you hear a doctor say that, you should probably find another doctor, (laughs) exactly. Um, But you do need to say, I will help you find the answers and you won't have to go through this alone. And so truthfulness, 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 I think is really important in the practice of medicine, in science and in public health.
3: There are a lot of voices out there yeah. All right. A lot coming out of the administration, a lot just coming on television, yeah. uh, and you hear a lot of different things. And I commend you. Yes, you're a friend. I've known you for a long time, and I love you. But you get up here and you tell folks, this is what we know, this is what we don't know. Yeah. And I never, ever, and I get plenty of comments that people appreciate the honesty you have and making it plain, as we like to say Thank sometimes. You. So Dr. Ashton, it is, it its is, it doesn't go unnoticed. It's okay. important. Appreciate it. Uh, pharmaceutical companies are racing to discover a vaccine for COVID-19 and in order to succeed, they need willing participants to test out possible options. So who are these folks stepping up to help the world get one step closer to a vaccine? Well, here to tell us about her experience so far is COVID-19 vaccine trial participant Stella Sexton, how in the world did you get involved with this in the first place?
8: Like a lot of us, I was sitting at home and um, staying at home and doing everything I was supposed to do, shopping for my elderly relatives, um, including my grandparents who are in their 90s and they're in a retirement community that has had COVID deaths. And of course I've been terrified for them and I wanna be able to see them and hug them again. So I was sitting at home and I saw on my health systems website that they were enrolling trial volunteers through the University of Pennsylvania Hospital. And so I just clicked it and emailed them because I felt like I had to do something.
3: You felt a duty of some type. Help me understand that a little better.
8: Well, you know, there's a lot of suffering going on and a lot of people that I know that have been affected by this. But just to give you one example, my, my grandfather is 93. When he was a little kid, he actually had to quarantine for three months because he had pertussis. And of course there was no vaccine for it then. Well, here we are over 80 years later and my kids have been out of school for three months and my grandpa's back in quarantine. It's 2020 and we need to fix this. And the only way that we're going to fix this rapidly is if people who are healthy and who have the ability to do so step up and participate in these trials.
3: All right. First, let's see. um, First dose. Do I have it right? You got about a month ago, a second dose yesterday. How has this process been going and how are you feeling?
8: I, I feel fine, i uh, be honest with you. Maybe after the first dose, I felt a tiny bit of fatigue, but I mean, I still went about my day, did everything normally, I feel fine. I have to say that the researchers that have worked with me at the hospital, the University of Pennsylvania, they have been phenomenal, they are so caring. Um, You have a whole appointment that's just about your informed consent and it's 22 pages and they go over everything that could possibly happen and make sure that you understand what you're consenting to. There is another appointment that's an extremely thorough physical, most thorough physical I've ever had in my life. Blood work, (laughs) everything. And um, then you don't get to the vaccination until that third appointment once you've cleared everything else. So I just want people to know that if they had seen what I've seen of course, I don't know whether the vaccine will work, but I can tell you that um, these scientists are working very hard and I feel that they're extremely trustworthy and really putting our safety as the trial volunteers first.
3: Last thing quickly the kids, what do they think about what Mama's doing?
8: <laughs> well, the kids are proud of me. Um, they know that vaccines are important. Of course, they're fully vaccinated. You know, first they were a little worried about my safety, but when I explained some things to them, They were really excited, they're proud, they're telling their friends and they both separately asked me if there was going to be a trial for kids because they want to help too.
3: Good luck to you and your family down the road, but good to see you Stella.
8: Thank you so much and thanks for having me on.
3: And that's our program for today, I'm TJ Holmes, thanks for listening.
9: As in previous campaigns, it's the economy stupid, we'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid.
5: It's not the economy, stupid.
9: It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In
10: 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election?